This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're coming to you from Hong Kong for our first ever podcast taped in the region. And we have an opportunity to explore one of the highest growth areas in China, the healthcare sector. Joining me today is Stephanie Hoy, Head of Merchant Banking Division in Asia Pacific X Japan. Welcome to the program, Stephanie. Thank you. I'm excited. Let's start with the big, big picture. What are the main things on your minds and on your clients' minds with respect to investing in China healthcare landscape today? Scale is definitely on everybody's mind for healthcare in China. Let's just have some numbers here. There is a total spending of one trillion expected for the healthcare sector by 2020. That's a triple relative to a decade ago. People are expecting that number to go to 2.3 trillion by 2030. And what's driving the growth? The growth is the huge population, 1.4 billion people. The scale of all that is tremendous. There's not even healthcare insurance at this moment, which is of size because it's still single-digit penetration rate. So as that comes through, you can see how fast the growth is. But however, while the opportunity is there, the risk is also there. Because, for example, in healthcare, there's pharmaceutical market, there's the services, and there's medical equipment. Pharmaceutical by definition, is binary. You either get the drug approved or you don't get the drug approved. So the risks for whoever's investing in there is understanding what they're doing, knowing that the risk is for 10 years or longer for getting a drug approved if they want to go global, and there's starts and stops. And by the way, there could be side effects, and China's not really litigious as an economy right now. But if the liability becomes a real issue going forward, the risk is even higher. So those are what's on people's minds. So globally, there's a lot of talk about the innovation economy. And I think a lot of outsiders view the innovation in China mostly around manufacturing and the like, although recently, certainly in e-commerce, an enormous amount of innovation. Talk about the healthcare industry is embracing innovation within China. And what are the unique advantages China has given its scale? The scale is very important. So China, just to share some numbers... 8 billion treatments last year. That's a huge number. That's the population of the world. There is 100 million diabetics, 700,000 cases of new lung cancer every year. It's one of the most prevalent country for both gastric cancer. Cardiovascular diseases is also increasing as the diet changes. And so I do think the scale just means the market opportunity is tremendous. You see the funding coming through as well. There are many biotech companies getting funded. A lot of the venture capitalists are also, in addition to chasing the tech sector, moving their capital into the biotech sector. That being said, I still think it's very early in the innovation stage because it's still primarily manufacturing and generics at this moment in time. It's a me too stage now. It will go into me better stage and it will go into best in class and then eventually go into the first in class. That's just a natural evolution of the process. It does take time, but China is actually moving in the right direction. There's a lot of talent in terms of the technicians. We need to improve the scientists in terms of their focus, because a lot of the doctors, as we discussed, are so busy treating patients in the big 3A hospitals, they have no time to teach nor to do research. So we need to have more time for them and energy to focus on the research and the patents going forth. And the last thing I would say is CEO talent for biotech companies is still lacking at this moment in time. But with 
the locals growing into larger companies and with returnees together, that would actually improve the potential of the sector tremendously. So you mentioned the phrase, me better. What does that mean in this context? And, and give us an example of where you're seeing that phenomenon in the industry. China right now, the focus has still been manufacturing generics and me too drugs. But I think the me better will come through because the drug will be lower priced. It will be better suited for the local population because a lot of the R&D today is done in the U.S. and in Europe, and genetic makeup of the population is different. But as the drug is adjusted and the administration of the drug is improved, that will happen in China because the population is so big and the market opportunity is so huge. Just to share with you an example, hepatitis C is most prevalent in China relative to any other country in the world, but the drug historically has been developed in the U.S. So we have invested in a drug which is targeting the hepatitis C sector, which is more suited for the Asian population, and the pricing of that is also more attractive relative to the West. We'll talk about that for a second. Some of the new drugs in the U.S., especially the very highly targeted ones, are incredibly expensive, and the costs are socialized through insurance, and the government's been willing, in many cases, to pick up the tab for these treatments if they're successful. How does that look in China today? Right now, the government is providing the basic health care, but for the more higher quality customized drugs, that still needs to become part of the coverage program. And so I do think that the me better drug or the best in class as the country develops that, that will over hopefully help lower the costs of these drugs for the local population. But today, the majority of the population is not having access to the higher value drugs at this moment. One of the areas of China's healthcare that's been different is just the insurance landscape. Describe how the insurance or lack of insurance changes some of the consumption patterns. There's a lack of insurance at this moment. If you look at the penetration rate, it's still single digit. And the spending on a per capita basis relative to the rest of the world, it's much smaller. Right now, it's about basic medical needs. There will be, however, a lot more demand as the penetration rate increases. The other interesting thing is people are willing to pay out of pocket. There are three decades of one-child policy. A lot of wealth has been passed to single child rather than being divided up to other siblings. And as a result, people are willing to pay out of pocket for more differentiated and more customized health care. Obviously, you've been investing a lot in healthcare in recent years. Share with us the rationale behind that investment and the potential overall for the market. I mean, it's obviously big, but as you said, off a per capita basis, very small. Yeah, so I would say in general, there are three areas that people focus on. First is the pharmaceuticals, which is a very big market. It's $120 billion market, number two relative to the U.S., by the way. The second is where the medical equipment comes in. And the third is where the services come in. So if you look at the pharmaceuticals, the picking of the winners there is the trickiest because of the binary risks we talk about. The approval processes for drugs could take years. The failure rates are very high. So you need to know what you're doing when you're making investments there. So we cherry pick there the sectors that we know through the Goldman franchise. The second area is the medical equipment, and that's very interesting because today, most of the healthcare services in China has been in big cities. People, regardless of what ailments they have, they go to the big cities, they queue up for hours. 
the doctors and the nurses are overworked. The government is trying to change that. They're trying to make sure that the resources is more evenly distributed. And as this decentralization of medical services happen, they need to build more facilities outside of the big cities, both public and private. So there will be more demand for the medical equipment. As the healthcare distribution spreads. Exactly. Yeah. But the issue with medical equipment is it could be non-recurring after they fit out. So the bigger the equipment, the more non-recurring they are. And hence, you see money is actually going into areas like diagnostics and tests where it's more recurring and the gestation period is shorter. And we are also looking at that area. For medical services, it's much more recurring, but because it's all to do with people and the service quality level needs to be maintained, it's just harder but it's much more recurring. And we also see that's where the discretionary spending is actually coming through. And hence, our focus has been into that area. So are people just going more often or are they going earlier in the treatment cycle? Yeah, to give you some examples, we have been investing in the largest dental treatment centers or clinic chains in China. We have been investing in one of the largest veterinary hospital chain because people in the past never kept dogs. Those were both somewhat discretionary in the it past. It is. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the veterinary hospital chain, it's almost all out-of-pocket payment. But people treat their pets over time more as family members, and they're willing to pay out-of-pocket. We're also going into pediatrics clinics, which we think parents are much more willing to spend for quality and customized services for their one child or two children. That's the type of services that we're increasingly targeting. So one of the big pushes of China policymakers has been to shift from a capital-intensive economy to an economy that's more driven by consumption habits. And obviously, this is a big piece of that. How does that drive to a more consumption-based economy factor into your thinking about the demand for healthcare? Yeah. The theme is still that discretionary spending. So we're seeing people spending more money on the looks So cosmetic surgery is an area. We're seeing people getting higher quality treatment, even for historically services that were covered by the government, like cancer treatment. In fact, we have invested in one of the leading cancer treatment chain in Australia for chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and we're helping to bring the service to China because radiotherapy, the penetration rate right now is in the teens. But in developed economies like the U.S. and Australia, radiotherapy treatment is part and parcel of the whole cancer treatment. It's often 40% of the total treatment spending. So you can see that's what we're going for, is better quality of life, more differentiated medicine, and also people who are willing to pay out of pocket. As insurance takes up, that's going to cover it for that spending as well. So you talked about a couple of them, obviously dental and cancer treatment. Are there other particular areas within healthcare where you see interesting opportunities? We see for diagnostics as well as for tests, that is also increasingly important. Historically, medicine is one size fits all, but go forth, they will look at the genetic makeup of the individuals, the stage of development of the disease, and also even the structure of the individuals as well as the ethnicity of the individual will change that. And so that testing will be the first entry point into healthcare treatment, and we see a lot more capital spending that is going in to improve that over time. Talk a little bit about the funding landscape. You talked about VC firms. In the past, a lot of the VC funding was coming from offshore, but there's a much bigger onshore VC community today. And obviously, a lot of 
U.S. private equity firms and European private equity firms are now competing with homegrown talent. What does the funding landscape look like right now in the healthcare sector particularly? So the funding landscape initially, it's more the VC from the states in the tech sector diversifying themselves and going into healthcare. The problem there is, unlike technology, healthcare has a much longer period for investment. To get a drug approved, it typically takes 10 years on average if you have to go global. So I don't think that the extracurricular activities for VC to go into healthcare is a long-term sustainable pattern for this space. We do need more domestic, longer-term government and also university participation for innovation to happen instead of this short-term money that is going through. And by the way, when the capital markets allow for a lot of these early stage VCs to go into the marketplace, there will be winners, but there will also be ones that are losers that won't happen or have flopped IPO. That would affect how people see this space as well. So I do think there should be more encouragement for longer-term capital and perhaps more specialized VC capital that goes specifically into biotech to go into that space because the LPs behind those will be much more used to a longer-term investment. Do you think we're getting to the point where we'll see breakthrough drugs develop in China and spread globally? That hasn't been the model so much today, but it sounds like we may be heading that way. I think we're heading that way. You're starting to see, for example, PD-1 antibiotics is already starting to move on a global basis. China is currently one of the largest API manufacturer to export. I think the number to the U.S. is $30 billion. That number will grow, and the quality needs to continue to improve for people to embrace the drug. But again, we're talking about a matter of time, because with all the human and capital resources that's going into the sector in China, it takes time, but it will happen. How about quality? We've seen some reports. Honestly, a report like that gets a lot of attention when there's a counterfeit drug or substandard vaccines and the like. Has that affect the industry's reputation and its ability to grow, particularly outside of China? When you have that big market, that many players spread over such big geography, there's bound to be the good players and the bad players. And I think the glitches and the hiccups that you're seeing right now that's being reported, it's a warning bell, but it's also a call for change, which is happening in the sector. In fact, to draw an analogy, because I've been operating in the market for 20 plus years, and I've been seeing a similar pattern happen in another industry, which is the milk industry. If you remember about 10 years ago, there were milk scandals that came through. And the problem back then was that the downstream had a branded product, but it was not controlling the upstream. So right after that scandal broke, what you saw is a lot of capital pouring into the upstream so that the producers make sure that the supply is actually of good quality. And in fact, they will own a lot of this supply to ensure quality instead of collecting it from the smaller players. So you're seeing exactly that warning bell effect happening in this space and people are improving the quality of supply. And in fact, the transparency of all this reporting just means that the local players know the implications of not behaving well and should change behavior accordingly. Again, it takes time for everything to happen and change. But that being said, I think all these are good signs to show. And indeed, you see the capital going into the upstream. And if you walk through the plants, In China these days, you see state-of-the-art facilities throughout the country. We're going to get to that. You said about a year ago you taped a video where you talked about 
seeing state-of-the-art facilities being built and a lot of capital being poured into hospitals and diagnostic centers. Is that trend still going strong today or what's changed? Oh, absolutely. I think that trend is only continuing. In fact, if you look at the size of the VC funding or the government funding, it actually increases dramatically. It used to be that Series A or B rounds are $20, $30 million, and then they keep adding onto it. These days, you're seeing Series B rounds going to $100 million, and then the size of it just increasing substantially. The, the rounds of fundraising is shortening in duration in between. So more capital, more intensity. And the other thing which is interesting is you see people congregating around a couple of opportunities because they want to have champions in each of the space. And as those grow, you do see competition coming through, but I do think that there is more of the congregation of capital into the winners, which means the scale over time will just increase the quality of the services as well as products. So you mentioned a couple of government policies. You mentioned the drug approval process and some other things the government's trying to do to move healthcare just out of the capital cities. Obviously, healthcare policy is always very closely intertwined with public health issues and government issues. How transparent is that, and does that make investing harder or easier? You see the change happening. China needs to improve their healthcare system because the anticipated number of people who will be over 65 is 330 million by 2050. And that's a triple, again, relative to the earlier part of the century. So they do need to increase and improve the efficiency of the healthcare system. The government announced Healthy China 2030, and in that it is more to spread out the resources and make sure that not everybody go into the cities and queue up for the same doctors and the same nurses, if you will, more the doctors. And so I do think that you see the investments going into all that direction to decentralize the resources, and we are also making good investments into that. Obviously, U.S. trade tensions with China have been dominating a lot of the headlines in both countries. What are the implications for healthcare in all this trade? Most of the attention, again, is on manufacturing, but is it having an impact on the way people see the sector? I think the Chinese market is big enough as a consumer at this moment in time that the investments are continuing. People think that, you know, of course, there's the China-U.S. rhetoric that is happening right now. But in the long term, it does not change the demographics. It does not change the fact that China needs to continue to improve on its healthcare reform. The market is big enough domestically. And so we're not worried about the investment in the sector. Talk about valuations. A lot of capital interested in China, particularly in the healthcare space. Are valuations getting stretched and is that getting people to hold back? Or what does the valuation picture look like today? Valuation is definitely getting stretched. When people were focused on the technology space three or four years ago, and we started already investing in that space, it was actually relatively reasonable. You can see good cash flow coming into the companies and you could pay a reasonable price for it. Today, when people start to turn focus or do the extracurricular investing into healthcare in addition to tech, we're seeing valuations getting driven up very quickly. And the danger about this space, again, is if you're pharmaceuticals, even if you have a PhD in the sciences today, you would not know as part of due diligence whether that particular drug would actually come through. So understanding what's in the pipeline, particularly for pre-approved drugs, is actually a big tricky part. And you need to have people who know the space, have the resources, have the reach. With high valuations and technical difficulty and the regulatory risk for approval for drugs and also for services, it could potentially be very lucrative, but it could also be a situation where the non-performers will have huge numbers as well. 
let's talk a little bit more broadly about investing in the region. You're a specialist in healthcare, but you look at a lot of different things and oversee a lot of different investments. What's going on in the region today? What's going on this year, next year, in the medium term? What trends are you looking at? Where do you see promising areas for investment? We're seeing that there is more focus back into the traditional. I mean, tech was getting all the attention for the last two or three years. We're seeing people saying that, you know, it may not be a good idea to have continuous cash burn and high valuations, and the public markets may not be taking those type of valuations anymore. So let's go back to basics. What does the country need? What is potentially attractive? And what is profitable? We're seeing that change. The other thing which is interesting is historically a lot of investments were minority. Now with the generational changes, you see entrepreneurs getting to the 60s and 70s. They need to think about succession. So management buyouts, leverage buyouts, majority sale is becoming more of a norm than the minority. And in addition, you're also seeing that there is a growing demand for local brands. While people historically were aspiring to buy foreign goods, I think there's more pride and need to have better quality local products. And so there's a push for domestic brands throughout the country where the younger generation actually like buying own products. So is that fueling innovation in the consumer space? It is. So when you walk around the cities these days, you will see that in the malls, while there's a nice selection of foreign brands as well, if you walk to the more affordable section, you'll see a lot of new brands coming through, very innovative with good quality products that are changing and touching the needs of the consumers. And it's very popular among the young generation. And in addition, there's also a very vibrant community of selling online, either through the social channel or through the e-commerce giants. And on there, you also see that the domestic brands are flourishing. So it's no longer the knockoffs and the sort of second-rate stuff. It's high-quality domestic. Yes, it's changing. It's high-quality domestic. It's different. The young generation not all want to carry the same high-quality but expensive same-brand products. They want to show who they are themselves. They want individuality. So you're seeing the market catering to that as well. You spend several days in China every week, and you've been doing this for two decades, or more than two decades, as you said. What are some of the biggest changes you've noticed over that period? I mean, probably too big a topic, but what are some of the ones that really stand out? I see a lot more sophistication, how business people are approaching the marketplace. People think strategically. They think capital markets. Historically, people don't really think about that. They think about producing a product, can I sell that? Today, they think, how is the landscape changing? Where are the opportunities? How can I get funding? What am I missing in terms of the shareholder space to improve my own resources? Who should I reach out to? Where are the professionals or the experts? So there's a lot more of a strategic approach and openness to embrace different ideas. And the other interesting part is M&A is actually a lot more supported, allowed, and accepted. It used to be build a company, pass it on to the next generation, but people are changing the mindset of that. So you see overall dynamism that is going on. You see improve quality of companies as well as management team. And you also see that there's more willingness to change and learn. I'm very impressed with particularly the big cities, but the secondary and tertiary cities are learning slowly as well. So you travel, obviously, all the time. What are some of the travel hacks that you use to stay fresh on the road? It's tough because going every week, two or three 
trips a week. It actually you get delays of flights, so you need to learn how to spend time in a quality way at the airport lounges. But I've been blessed with high energy level and also very easy lifestyle in the sense that I can shut my eyes and get sleep anywhere. So that has been very helpful. And also, there's no time. Difference, so no jet lag, which is very smart. Whoever came up with the time zone, keeping it all in one time. It's zone, all in yeah. one time, so it's it's relatively easy within the region. It's the cross region that becomes a little bit tricky. Well, Stephanie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on October. 22nd, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.